And that last song talks about prayer, and we're going to be heading in that direction this morning, uh, church family. And, and uh, if you're visiting us, me for the very first time, so glad that you found the Bible Church today. And my name is Tim, one of the pastors here, but we're just excited that you'd be with us. And if, uh, if we can help you in any way get to know us better, then just pull us aside and we'll try to do that and answer any questions that you might have. But church family, we're going to spend a little time worshiping the Lord and uh, doing that in the study of his word together. So I will ask you, if you wouldn't mind, uh, grab your Bible and let's go to the epistle of 1 John near the end of your Bible, 1 John chapter 5. And boy, by now, your Bible probably just springs right open to that spot. You don't even have to, to touch it and it opens to 1 John because we've been in this place for quite some time in our study series together. If you need a Bible this morning... Just raise your hand. We keep some in the back. We're glad to share a copy of God's Word with you. And there's a note page in your bulletin. looks like this. Grab that note page out of there because that will definitely be of help today. And this morning, verses 14 to 17 of chapter 5 of 1 John, come into our sights today as we continue to think about what it means to be real Christians in an unreal world. And though these verses will make us work for our bread this morning, especially verse 16, I'm excited that we get to share them together because they are practical verses and they are necessary for any of us who want to to strengthen our prayer life and make it a more significant and effective part of how we do life with Jesus in an authentic and biblical way. Now, if you are one of those whom God has wired to be kind of a stickler for details, you might have noticed that I have skipped over verse 13. And uh, we're doing 14 to 17 today. And your way of thinking is, well, we were in verses 6 through 12 last time. So on deck today would be verse 13. And we're not doing verse 13. We've skipped over it. And if you made that observation, good on you. You are a detailed person. And we need your hawk-eyed vision to keep us on point. Now, I haven't accidentally missed verse 13. You probably knew that, but I I, I know we are jumping over it. After today, church family, we have two more scheduled mornings with 1 John, and then our series will draw to a close. We'll step into the Easter season and be doing some special things there. And so my my wish, my, my desire is to have our final moment in this extraordinary book, our final moment to be devoted to what I would consider to be the theme verse of the book, which is 513. We've, spent, we've, we've run here a number of times over the last several months. So I'd like to land as the concluding morning uh, onto this verse. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. That is 1 John in one verse. And so, Lord willing, we'll use that verse in two mornings to kind of pull everything together and finish up the series. John's entire letter, Holy Spirit inspired, has been devoted to laying out repeatedly the proofs by which we can always tell a real Christian from a phony or fake professing Christian. What are those proofs? Well, We can tell the real from the unreal, John would say, by what a person believes, by how they behave, and by how they love. And we have been moving over that ground repeatedly through the months together. 
with verse 12 of chapter 5, John ends what we might call the, 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 the formal presentation of these proofs of what it means to be real. And that being the case, verses 13 to 21, the closing verses of the book, they essentially serve as John's postscript, a series of powerful concluding thoughts that are intended to give a a final injection of confidence and assurance to the hearts of real Christians whose faith is continually being challenged by an aggressively hostile to Jesus world. John focuses on five things that genuine Christians, real Christians, can be absolutely certain of, introducing each one of those in this section, this closing section, with the words, you know, or we know. In fact, a good little exercise would be to take your marker or your highlighter and circle the six times in these nine verses when John says, we know. Real Christians know, he says, that they have eternal life, verse 13. That their God answers their prayers, verses 14 to 17. That that they have the power to overcome sin, verse 18. Real Christians know that they are God's forever possession, in verse 19. And that Jesus is God in the flesh, their Savior and their life, in verses 20 and 21. Again, saving verse 13 and the certainty of having eternal life through faith in Jesus as our series closer. Today, let's take up the second of these certainties that John highlights that a real Christian has. And that is the certainty that God answers our prayers. It's verses 14 to 17. Allow me to read those for us and you follow along. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death, and I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. And we'll stop right there. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, there is some challenge for us in this morning, especially with verse 16. The intended meaning of this verse has been debated since the early centuries of the church, and you just have to read through it once, and you know why that would be true. There is some interesting stuff going on in verse 16. I don't think we're going to end that debate here today and settle for all time uh, how verse 16 will be handled, but we'll do our best to try and land on some practical and usable ground together. We'll see what the the Holy Spirit gives to us. But let's step in then to this section and into verses 14 and 15 first and the prayer that God always hears as you see it there on your note page. John writes... And this is the confidence that we have toward him, before him, or in his presence, your version may read. The hymn here, of course, is referring to God the Father. John includes himself with his readers when he says, we have confidence before God, confidence in his presence. And if we just pause for a second on that thought, that is a wonderfully remarkable statement. 
if you just linger on it and, and kind of meditate on that, that any sinner ever can have the hope of being in the presence of the God whose scripture says is holy, holy, holy. The God whom angels hide their faces when they are before him. That you and I could be confidently in the presence of that God is a remarkable thought. But Jesus has made that possible, hasn't he? Amen and amen. Through our faith in his death and in his resurrection, we who are justly condemned sinners, who who rightly deserve hell, we are instead clothed with the righteousness of Christ. We've been talking about that. Our sin is covered by Jesus. And we don't just come into God's presence in a, a, a tentative, cowering, fearful way, which would be grace on grace if it turned out like that. But we come how? confidently, boldly before him because we are in Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful truth. That word confidence is a word that elsewhere in the New Testament is translated as boldness or or open access. It literally means freedom to speak. You feel confident to talk or to speak. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 12, we're told that Through faith in Jesus, real Christians have bold and confident access to God. It's a great verse, 312. What an undeserved privilege we receive through faith in Jesus. And and check out what the Holy Spirit tells us in Hebrews 4, verses 15 and 16. These are verses that you probably know quite well. For we do not have a high priest, referring to Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with what? Confidence. Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Our faith in Jesus, brothers and sisters, grants us full access into the presence of the holy, holy, holy God of of the universe. And our faith in Jesus grants us access to an incredibly impressive arsenal of resources that help us to do life with Jesus in this fallen world. And one of those resources that God has given us is the resource of prayer. The sure promise from God that when believers freely, confidently, boldly come to him with their prayer requests, he will hear and he will answer. Verse 14, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything, there's the prayer part, according to his will, we, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. He hears us. As John uses that expression here, In this context, it doesn't simply mean that Jesus knows we're talking. He hears us. That word actually carries with it the idea of God granting what he hears us asking for. So it's a big big word. It's a big thought. So here we have the assurance from the Holy Spirit through John's pen concerning God and our prayers. And just like today, Christians back in the first century wondered, Does God hear my prayers? Do you ever wonder that? Christian, do you ever wonder that? Does God hear my prayers? Because 
my experience is that I sometimes pray for something or I ask for something and it doesn't go the way that I prayed it. Has that ever happened to you? It doesn't, it doesn't happen in the way I, I asked for it or in the time frame that I asked for it. Uh, it, it. It just doesn't seem maybe like anything has happened at all to some of the things that I have prayed. Does God hear and answer our prayers or not? Once again, this is the confidence we have toward him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if he, we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request we have asked of him. That is a pretty big promise, isn't it? We might think, that doesn't always play out in my life like that. Now, to the less than careful reader, this sounds kind of like a blank check, doesn't it? I can just go to God, ask him for whatever I want. He's going to give it to me. Uh, he'll do it for me, almost like God is some giant Santa Claus and I'm sitting on his knee and I've got my list, right? To realize that this perspective is actually held by more than just a few, all you have to do is tune in to the, the popular TV health and prosperity teachers uh, that are on television, and there are many of them. Watch them. Uh, well, I'm not sure I encourage you to watch them, but, but if you do watch them, uh, you will watch them take a few Bible verses, yank them out of context, twist them to their own ends, gradually applying more energy and more uh, emotion as they speak until they, they get the audience to eventually rise up out of their seats. And then this, this, this TV preacher talking about health and prosperity will say something like, right now, ask God for anything that you want. Claim it as your own right now. And everybody stands up and they're cheering and they're dancing and, and the music comes sweeping in and, and they're claiming their requests. Have you ever seen that? Sure you have. Now this, I would submit, is not what verses 14 and 15 are talking about. While we as real Christians are given an invitation to ask God for anything at any time in this invitation here, it comes with one very important qualifier. What is that qualifier, church? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The request must be according to his will. And this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now, if we are brutally honest, brothers and sisters, this is probably where if we have ever been disappointed in our personal prayer life, this is probably where it broke down for us. Our prayers were according to our will. Our will. God, please do this. Lord, I really need this to happen in this way, in this time frame. Are you listening? Right? God, I want you to do, and then you fill in the blank. Now, our Heavenly Father, because He is our Father, He knows us so well, and He is so patient with us. He understands our immaturity as we're growing in Jesus. He understands our proneness to self-focus. He understands that we have fears, and He understands that there are just limitations, being finite creatures, limitations in being able to grasp the big picture of His purposes. He gets all of that. However, 
maturing in this arena of prayer in our lives as growing Christians means understanding that prayer's primary purpose is not to get God to align up with my will. The real purpose of prayer is for me to get in alignment with His will, right? Isn't that it? And we miss that sometimes. And so for us to pray according to God's will requires that we know God's will, right? And the most certain and sure way for you and I to know God's will is for us to know God's word, right? To know his word, for that is where he has permanently placed his will on a printed page. His word, his will is in his word. On the night before Jesus went to the cross for us, a night, by the way, that John, the writer of this epistle, was present at that night. Jesus, on that night before the cross, prayed to his heavenly Father, and he made a request on behalf of his followers down through the church age. And here's what he asked the Father. Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus said, set apart, make holy all who are real followers of me by the truth contained in your word, your will, as it's revealed in Holy Scripture. God is the God of truth. We know that. His will is truth. We know that. His truth is in his word. Therefore, we can always be confident that his will is going to be found in his word. The Apostle Paul will write to a young pastor in training, Timothy. Interesting, I like that name. Second Timothy three, sixteen and seventeen. All scripture is breathed out by God, meaning it's inspired by God, authored by God, and it is profitable for four things teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man, the person of God, may be Complete, equipped for every good work. Paul's essentially telling Timothy that the word is where God has sourced his will for how to live and for how to pray. If we're going to pray according to God's will, which ensures that a prayer will be answered as prayed, we must know the word of God. We've got to know the word. Amen? Earlier that same evening when Jesus prayed, Father, sanctify them in the truth, Jesus said to his disciples that same night before the cross, John 15, 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now that's a statement about prayer, isn't it? But it's also a statement about the will of God. Jesus could say that to us because if his will, his words are dwelling in us and defining our wishes and our wants and our dreams, we're going to be praying according to his will and the request we make, he will be pleased to answer because it is his will. The prayer of the Father The prayer the Father always answers, the request that Jesus is always honored to respond to is the one that is made according to the will of God. And that will be a request that is sourced 
in the word of God. Jesus, again, on that same eve before the cross, he said in John 14, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me for anything in my name, I will what? I'll do it. I'll answer your request. I'll answer your prayer. To pray in Jesus' name means to pray consistent with who he is as God. To pray what would be his will. To, to pray what he would ask for of his heavenly Father with the goal of bringing greater glory to the Lord. And then praying according to God's will not only brings glory to the Father, glory to the Son, and ensures that our prayers get answers answered as they are expressed, but prayers of this kind also result in a very real joy for you and me. A deeply satisfying sense of fulfillment and pleasure when we pray according to God's will. So once again, on this night before the cross, Jesus makes this statement in John 16:23. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Why? Well, because it is a request according to the Father's will in Jesus' name. Until now, you've asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your what? Your joy, your joy may be full. Brothers and sisters, when our delight in our praying is the Lord's will more than our own will, God, by his spirit, plants in our hearts requests that are going to glorify God. That's what the spirit will do. If our passion is to pray according to the Lord's will. And is that not what Psalm 37, 4 says? Delight yourself in the Lord, in his will, and he will do what? He'll give you the desires of your heart. God's answers to those prayers that glorify him, that are prayed according to his will, brings his will into our lives and gives us joy. He answers those prayers. And there's great joy for you and me. So if it is in God's word that we find God's will most clearly expressed, it makes sense, doesn't it, fellow Christian, to be in the word of God if we want to improve our prayer life? Does that make sense to you? Okay, great, good. Just just wanting to make sure that's the case. If you long to experience the a more dynamic, powerful, difference-making prayer life, and you're not already doing it, making time to be in God's Word every day, reading it, studying it, memorizing it, just makes sense. If you're saying, man, my prayer life is just kind of in the tank, maybe the best place to start is to spend time in the Word. Because it is out of that then that you will pray. Prayers that the Lord just delights in answering. I would especially commend to you passages like the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, 7. Hang out with there in those places. In fact, in that particular place, the model prayer that Jesus gave to his disciples is found, Matthew chapter 6. Take a refresher course in Exodus chapter 20, where God gives his Ten Commandments. Those commandments are his will, aren't they? Well, 
Wouldn't be a bad thing to hang out there. Feast on Jesus' prayer to the Father in John 17 on the night before he went to the cross. Or, or maybe spend time with the prayer that he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane in, John, in, 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 his, in the Gospels as well. And, and then maybe chapter 1 of all of Paul's letters would be a good place to hang out. Because in those opening chapters is where Paul prays for believers and prays for the church. And there would be great encouragement there. We learn how to pray according to God's will as we spend time in God's word. In fact, consider for just a moment the model prayer that Jesus gave his disciples when they asked him to show them how to pray. It'll serve as a great outline for your own prayers and put them on point. Remember these words? Jesus says, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. God's will is to make his name holy in the world and in my heart. I can ask for that. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Enlarge my world view, Father, so that it gets my focus off of me and on to you. Your program, your agenda. Give me this day my daily bread. My trust in you, Father, is that you will supply all that I need. Maybe not everything that I want, but everything that I need. Forgive me of my sins, as I also forgive those who sin against me. Father, I'm in need of receiving grace today, and I'm sure I'm going to need to give grace to someone who has hurt me. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. Father, temptation and sin are everywhere. Steer me through that dangerous, that dangerous minefield. You direct me. This, I would submit to us, is praying according to God's will. And how very different this prayer sounds from right now, Ask God for what you want. Claim it as your own right now. Now that's very different, isn't it? The first step in prayers that God answers is to ask God for what he wants, not what we want. Even Jesus does this in the Garden of Gethsemane, doesn't he? You remember that moment? The cross is only hours away. Jesus says, my father, if it is possible, let this cup this cup of suffering pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. That's the right heart, isn't it? That's the right posture to come before the Father and make requests. Here is Jesus, our best, most beautiful example of what it means to pray according to God's will. Brothers and sisters in Jesus, we can ask God for anything as long as the heart behind our asking has as its bottom line, Father, ultimately what I really, really want is what you want. Do you pray like that? Do you frame your prayers that way? Because that's really what John is talking about. Since God's will and purposes will always stand when I ask according to his will, I'm going to get what I ask for every single time. How cool is that? And this is the confidence that we have toward him. 
that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Do you believe it? Let's practice that, right? Let's, let's practice this. And with that then, John's going to step us now into verses 16 and 17, which read like this. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. And here's where I'm going to ask Pastor Brandon to come up now, and he's going to explain verses 16 and 17 to you. <laughs> no, that, that, that's not going to happen. I would not do that to him. But you, you know what? Uh, a first blush of this, these two verses, man, you know you're grabbing hold of something pretty wild, right? John appears to introduce an abrupt change of subject between verse uh, 15 and verse 16. But John is actually not changing subject at all. Prayer is still, for him, the main point of verses 16 and 17. And what he does here is actually offer one example, one illustration to his Christian readers of what praying according to God's will might look like. So he's just giving us an example. But boy, what does he put in front of us here? On your note page, I have jotted down just a few truths for us to keep in mind as we take on verse 16 and step into this challenging moment. Truth number one, as I mentioned a moment ago, the focus is on prayer. It is not on a particular sin. And it is important, brothers and sisters, that we state that and that we keep that firmly in front of us. The focus is on prayer, not a particular sin. I underscore that for us because there is something weird that can happen to us with a text like this, we can become strangely fixated on this sin leading to death, try to figure that out, and completely miss the larger, more pressing issue, which is that we are to be praying for one another, especially when we see a brother or a sister entangled in sin. We miss the moment. You remember that one of John's defining proofs of being real is that we love each other, right? One of the ways that we love each other is that we pray for each other. And we pray for each other when, when we see a brother or sister who steps into a place of sin and we know it's a, that they're, 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 they're being taken out. We love on them by praying for them. And that's John's big picture point here in this moment. We don't want to forget that. Second, we want to keep in mind that John is referring to real Christians in this verse. Brothers. Notice that. Circle it. Highlight it. Let's not miss that. He's used this term throughout the epistle to refer to those who are truly in Jesus by faith. And he's not suddenly going to change and make the word brother mean an unbeliever. It's a believer that is in view. 
That is, and, that, and real Christians. So we want to keep that in mind. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, he shall pray, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. So John has in view Christians who get entangled in sin. This sin either leads to death or it doesn't lead to death, John adds. There is a sin that leads to death, and I do not say that one should pray for that. Now, evidently, John and all of his readers knew exactly what this phrase, a sin leading to death, meant. So he feels no need to offer us an explanation. However, we are 2,000 years separated from the late first century, and we don't know what this means. At least we don't have a right-off-the-cuff kind of, a, of an understanding. We're struggling for some footing. What does that mean? Well, that said, another truth for us to keep in mind is this truth. A true Christian cannot persist in sin unto eternal death. Therefore, the death that John speaks of must be a physical death. Okay? Are you with me up to this point? Is everybody tracking with me? Yeah? Our assurance for that, that truth comes straight from John himself earlier in the letter. Back in chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Do you remember these words when we were spending time here? No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. In other words, a true brother or sister in Jesus will not and cannot persist in ongoing rebellion against God that would result in what we would call eternal spiritual death. Jesus paid for their life with his life, right? They're a brother. They're a sister in Christ. Now, the one born of God can sin, be deceived by sin, willingly or foolishly become entangled in a sin for a season. Does that ever happen? Has it ever happened to you? No, no way, never. Of course, it happens to all of us. But if we're real, if we really are in Jesus we cannot stay in that sinning place indefinitely. And that's John's point. You cannot. Which is why, fellow Christian, we can confidently pray for our sin-entangled brother or sister. We can pray for the cords of the sin that is binding them to be broken. We can pray for the snare that they've stepped into to be torn apart, the pit that they have fallen into to be filled in. We can pray for that because God promises us the prayer here in verse 16, you shall ask and God will give him, your brother or your sister who has become entangled in sin, will give them life to those who commit sins do not lead to death. That brings to mind a fourth truth. On your note page, since this brother already has eternal life, the life that John refers to in verse 16 must be something else, right? 
It must be the, the joyful, abundant life that is experienced afresh by the sinning brother or sister following repentance for sin, restored fellowship with God, which God says, I will give upon the intercessory prayer of another Christian. Are you following me? Are you tracking? Tell me the truth, are you? All right, great. So keeping these four truths in mind, we can confidently come before our God and specifically pray for a fellow Christian who has somehow stepped into Satan's trap, sin's entanglement. We can pray for those entanglements to be broken because we know this is God's will. He does not want our sinning brother or sister to remain entangled in sin. Is that God's will? Let's give it a chapter and a verse. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. For this is the will of God, your what? Your sanctification. Big word, big seminary type word. It means godly living. It means a holy life. It means reflecting the character of Jesus day in and day out. This is God's will, your sanctification. We pray for that, don't we? That's what we pray for our sinning brother or sister. Their sanctification. That's God's will. And he says, I will answer that prayer because that's my will. God's will in our praying is further expressed this way in James chapter 5, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The context is sin, praying for each other in the midst of the battle that we fight with sin. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And it has great power because God has promised, if you pray according to my will for your sinning brother or sister, for their sanctification, I'm going to answer that prayer. That's why it has power. And hear what Ephesians 6.18 calls for from us, church family. Listen. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for who? For all the saints. Is this God's will for us? That we would be praying for each other? Praying for God's blessing for sure, but praying for each other, especially when sin's tentacles are trying to entangle one of our own. We pray. So we pray confidently for our sinning brother or sister, believing God will answer. We pray for them according to God's will. And then, as we should, no matter what the focus or the topic of our praying is, we should say, Father, I want what you want for my sinning brother or sister. I want your will for I want what you want. And we, we, we must express that as we pray for that brother or sister because of what John says in the last part of verse 16. There is a sin that leads to death. Talking about a Christian now. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. Now again... Since the one being prayed for is a real Christian, a brother or a sister, the death in view cannot be eternal spiritual death, can it? It cannot be separation for God forever in hell. 
Why? Why? They're saved. Jesus paid that sin debt, right? So that's not what's in view here. So the death death must be a physical death, the loss of physical life, a disciplinary action on the part of God towards that brother or sister who deliberately continues in some sinful activity in such a way that God finally says, enough! And their life is taken from them. Now that sounds pretty scary, but it is what the text says. They're not banished to an eternal hell. They are in Jesus, but but God sovereignly and He justly requires the premature ending of that believer's physical life and takes them out of the world. And we ask, is there precedent for that in Scripture? Where do you go? Where do you get that from, Tim? Well, there is precedent in Scripture, isn't there? More than once. The bottom of your note page, God required the life of Ananias and Sapphira. Do you remember this? Acts chapter 5, they lied to the Holy Spirit in front of the whole church. And what happened? They both dropped dead. That's what the text tells us. That's what Scripture tells us. When a professing Christian man in Corinth entered into a, a gross sin that not even the unbelievers practiced, the Apostle Paul instructed the church saying, 1 Corinthians 5, 5, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved to the day of the Lord. Talking about death of a believer who's just, God says, we're done. I'm not going to allow you to continue to mar my name in such a way. I love you. I've saved you. I'm taking you out of here. And when that same church family started to treat the communion table with carelessness, irreverent disregard for Jesus and what this table represents, his his life for our life, when they did that, Paul writes and he says in 1 Corinthians 11, for this reason many among you are weak and sick and a number have what? Died. Died. There is sin that can lead to physical death for a Christian. John purposely purposely does not tell us what that is. It could be anything that is so offensive to God that at a particular point he determines that it is serious enough to warrant such a severe action. John is saying that in such situations, no matter how much prayer might go up for that sinning brother or sister, God's not going to restore them and give them the abundant life that they forsook when they stepped into the sin, right? That's what he's saying. You can pray all you want. It's not going to happen. So it would be better not to pray for them. We say, well, how do I know? Well, we have to rely on the Holy Spirit at that point to show us when do we stop praying for a sinning brother or sister. Father, this grieves me so deeply to think of my brother, my sister, entangled in this way. I think you're telling me to release them. Not my will, but yours be done. Right? That's the heart. That's the heart. And so, church family, verses 14 to 17, they remind us of a couple of things. 
the incredible confidence that we can have in our prayer life, especially so when our passion is to find the sweet spot of God's will and pray from that place, right? This this passage is telling us that. The answers to those prayers are absolutely guaranteed by the God of heaven. That's awesome. And, and though verse 16 is one of the most challenging verses in all of Scripture, and there are other perspectives on this passage. We, we, we're not laying it down and saying this is the only way. What is not difficult to grasp in this moment is that you and I, brothers and sisters, we have an incredibly important role to play in each other's lives, don't we? Because we all sin. A church our size seems to always have real Christians, born again, loving Jesus Christians who who teeter on the edge of falling into sin. Temptation overruns them. Some, Some just sample a sin because they want to. Their hearts are moving away from God's will and towards some tantalizing pleasure. Who knows what it is? We must pray for one another and especially for those so entangled that God would grant repentance and give them that abundant life once again that they forsook when they stepped into that sinful place. We are challenged in this passage to do that. Pray confidently and pray for one another. Amen? Let's take that away today. Let's take that away in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Well, you've given us plenty to chew on. Once again, Heavenly Father, we are grateful for that. We love you and we love your word and we so want to be handling it correctly. And if at any point along the way here we've missed you and your intent, uh, especially with verse 16, uh, Holy Spirit, would you just make whatever was off target, just make it fall away and be forgotten. But if, if we have been in the center of your truth today, Would you not let us go? Would you just burn these truths into our hearts? May they compel us to live more godly lives before you? To not become entangled in those sinful places where your discipline could become so severe as to take us out of this world? And may you burden us for the brothers and sisters who are around us who have stepped into those dark places. They need our prayers. Bring them to our minds. Do not let us forget to pray for them and to pray with confidence because you have given us the promise that you will hear and you will answer. How we thank you for you. We love you, but only because you loved us first. And all God's people said, Amen and amen.